Welcome to this edition of Middle Market Musings, the podcast devoted to the people and ideas of the middle market. I'm Andy Greenberg of Greenberg Variations Capital. And I'm Charlie Gifford of New Heritage Capital. Today we are speaking with John Skinner, CEO of PSP Partners. Before we start, Andy and I would like to thank our two main sponsors, New Heritage Capital and Greenberg Variations Capital. We wouldn't be anywhere without their support. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Middle Market Musings. John Skinner, CEO of PSP Partners. We are delighted to welcome you to Middle Market Musings. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Charlie. Well, Andy and I have been doing this for a while. And in our, uh, in our little prep conversations, uh, our conversations go in a million different directions. And you've got a, a wonderful story to tell. And we're excited to uh, give you uh, a little bit, a little audience for you to do so. But maybe we can just start off. You are the pride of Waltham, Mass. You're a Bostonian at heart, right? I am indeed. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Sure. Uh, for, first, again, uh, thanks for having me, uh, Charlie and Andy. Longtime listener, first time caller. So really appreciate uh, doing this. Um, as you mentioned, I grew up in Waltham uh, and uh, spent my first 14 or so years in the Waltham public school system. Um, was was really fortunate uh, to to uh, have the opportunity to attend Belmont Hill School uh, in ninth grade, starting in ninth grade, and it was really great life changing experience. Uh, growing up in Waltham, I I had you know I think a, a really great childhood in many ways. Uh, I played a lot of sports. I skied at a, a a little ski hill called Prospect Hill that is now long defunct, um, and played football and uh, just had a. a generally good uh, good experience so john you you for those that don't know belmont hill uh is a incredibly highly regarded uh prep school outside of boston located in the town of belmont um and um that must have been a bit of a uh, transition from the waltham public schools going to belmont hill it really was charlie and i i didn't fully appreciate it at the time i came to pretty quickly understand the the difference in my life um i i my, my mom uh, had gone to college uh, along with all of her other siblings. My grandfather uh, was a, a first-generation immigrant from Italy. He was a bricklayer when he came to the U.S. at the age of 14. And I, I had the, uh, the good fortune to work for my, my grandfather, Gildo Manzon, um, every summer uh, from probably starting at the age of 12 through, through 17 years old. And um, the, the, the entire family was basically in Waltham. And so leaving Waltham... To, especially leaving Waltham to go to a place like Belmont Hill was very, very much out of the the ordinary. Uh, no one had gone to a school like Belmont Hill out of my family. Uh, like I said, my 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 mother and her siblings had all gone to college, but they were uh, very regional colleges. And and uh, I guess my aperture on what the world looked like was 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 pretty small. It kind of ended at the border of of Waltham, and so Belmont Hill was a very eye opening experience. It was life changing in so many ways. To say nothing of the fact that in ninth grade, you had to put on a tie and wear a tie every day to school, right? That must have been a bit of adjustment. That was a, that was quite an adjustment. Uh, it didn't set well. And my, let's just say my first couple of months were very rocky. If any of my friends from Belmont Hill are listening, they'll be smiling at my my first couple of months of of, of acclimation to uh, to Belmont Hill. The dress code and the various different uh, 
requirements that they put on you at Belmont Hill. But I was fortunate was to, there, to make a lot of great friends. John, is there a teacher or a coach who jumps to mind as somebody who is, saw you during that early transition and uh, helped you along? Yeah, thanks, Andy. Uh, there, there was. Um, there were many, actually. But, uh, but one who really stands out uh, is a, a gentleman by the name of Eddie Gallagher, a uh, longtime Belmont Hill legend, um, who I think understood. He understood a uh, young man, and he understood some of the challenges that people were going through. And he saw the challenges I was going through uh, as a new student at a, at a place like Belmont Hill and really feeling out of sorts. I would say took me under his wing. He he looked out for me. Uh, he held me to a very high standard. That was Mr. Gallagher's uh, approach. But he was a, a really great mentor at that stage of my life. I'm very appreciative of it. One of the things that when I think of Belmont Hill, I think of um, scholarship, but I also think of athletics. You you were uh, you were a football stud too, right, Skinner? I don't know if I was a football stud, but I, I did play football. I played basketball. Uh, I played lacrosse, and I my senior year ran track. So I, I played a, a number of different sports uh, at, at Belmont Hill. We had a heck of a run and I'm very proud of Belmont Hill and, and the school it was and it's become. Athletically, we, we were uh, fortunate to have a lot of great athletes when I was there. Um, and, and then you leveraged that into a, a trip down 95 and spent four years in Providence at Brown and played football there as well, right? Well, I did. There was a detour along the way. Um, before, before I went to Brown, I, I actually um, first uh, went to Davidson College. When I was coming out of Belmont Hill, I, I wanted to go to a, a, a strong academic school. I was interested in going to a small school. Um, so I looked at a lot of schools in the NESCAC and I wanted to play football. And uh, I, I went to Davidson. Um, when I went to Davidson on my uh, visit, I think it was the first time I'd been on an airplane. I was 17 years old and I'd never actually been on an airplane, which is kind of funny since I've more than made up for it in the last 25 or 30 years. Um, but but it, it seemed very exotic to me to go to as far away as North Carolina to go to college. Um, like I said, I was the first to go to a school like Belmont Hill, and I was really the first to to leave the Northeast region in my entire family. So then you, you uh, came back to College Hill? I did. I transferred to Brown at, after a couple of years. Um, it was an interesting set of events, very fortunate uh, in many ways. Um, could not have been predicted, but uh, they sort of fell into place, and I transferred to Brown. Spent my last two years at Brown, um, loved it, uh, made a lot, again, a lot of great friends. It was a very different experience in Davidson, but a terrific experience. Made Charlie, a lot of good Charlie, friends and probably, enjoyed it. Charlie, you probably don't know this, but I, I went to college at Brown. Back to you, John. Um, so you enjoyed your two years in, uh, in Providence. <laughs> I did. I did. It was, uh, it, was, it was really great. What did you study in college? I was a history major, so it was a was and remains a passion of mine, but I just was, have always been interested in, in history, American history in particular, but, but, but all, all forms. And I graduated with really no discernible skills. I, I, I didn't really have a lot of intentionality in choosing that major about where it would lead me in life. Um, I just thought it would be interesting. Most memorable history course at Brown. I, I, uh, I took an American history class uh, with, with a ex extremely well-known professor by the name of Gordon Wood. And uh, he's, <laughs> he's actually, uh, I think the the professor quoted in Goodwill Hunting, uh, in the in yeah. in the bar scene, and uh, yeah, I, I took a, I did take a class from Professor Wood, and it was terrific. So when you graduated with a degree in history from Brown University, what what what, what did the world look like for you? What what where did you kind of hone in your interests, focus, next 
job, uh, first job opportunity. Yeah, I, I don't think I really thought about what would come next until after my last game of my senior year. I know it sounds kind of crazy now. And if my kids said that to me, I'd my 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 head would start to spin. But were, were you interested in business by then? Uh, not not particularly. Um, my mom had gone to law school when I was in middle when I was in junior high school. And that was, a again, a, 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 a very formative experience for for myself and for, and for my sister, for our whole family, because I saw someone undertake a, a, a significant lift later in life to do something really uncomfortable. And, it, and in addition to me going to Belmont Hill, my mom was going to law school and it really put a lot of strain on the family, both financially as well as just operationally. You know, we just how we actually got through the day was difficult, but it, but it, but it, but it opened my eyes to to what was maybe possible for me. I, I I also, when I was at Belmont Hill, I I frankly got to know a lot of good friends whose parents were lawyers and it all seemed like their parents had really good jobs and lived in nice homes. And I thought, wow, that, there must be something to that. So I'll, I'll go become a lawyer. I, I left uh, Brown planning more on law school as a path and less on business, Andy. Um, and in, as, you know, as things would turn out, I did end up going to uh, to law school, but it was after a couple of year detour in, in Chicago. After college, was was Chicago the focus? You ended up at Northern Trust, I think, right? Yes. Uh, uh, was Chicago the focus? No, not at all. Um, uh, my college roommate, actually at Davidson College, had had taken a job working for Sam Zell, uh, one of Sam Zell's portfolio companies here in Chicago. And um and he just told me, uh, we, we had a call. He said, it's a great city. And I'd, I'd never been to Chicago before. So I, I thought, wow, it sounds like another interesting adventure. And uh, there happened to be a listing for a job uh, at the Northern Trust Company posted at Brown. So I applied. And next thing I knew, I was on a on an airplane out to Chicago to interview. And I got that job and ended up spending two years working at Northern Trust before law school. So Northern Trust met a young lady named Karen, right? Who now you continue to hang out with? I do. I do indeed. So, so by far the best thing that happened to me in my, my uh, post-college experience in Chicago was shortly after moving here, I met my now wife, Karen. We've been married for, it'll be 30 years this August. Both of us had, had recently moved to, to Chicago. We were, we were fortunate to, to meet up here and uh, we've been together ever since. So I guess that's now, that was in uh, 1991 and we're still together, three kids. So let's go on that little tangent because usually then we just, you know, we'll talk about your next job and your next job and your next job. But one of the things I know about you and your children is um, the three of them are, are all highly decorated. Um, do you say they're crewers or they do crewers? Rowers, excuse me. God, shows you how little I know about the sport other than the fact that I love the movie Boys in the Boat. But um, is the... You know, you are a football player and you have three children who are obviously very gifted athletically that have all excelled in the sport of crew, including your youngest, Jack, who, if my notes are correct, which is only, you know, a coin flip if they are, was named U.S. Rowing's Rower of the Year in the U19 category, which is makes one of us. Um, that's pretty cool. How did they get into rowing? You didn't row crew. What, what was the idea? You know, how did that all come to pass? When... Our kids were, were younger. They they played all sorts of different sports. Our daughter Hannah, who Charlie, as you may remember, went to uh, 
nursery school at Spruce Street with your daughter. Uh, Shout out to uh, the class. What is it? The nursery school class of like 2001 or something. 2001. I think that's right. Yeah. 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 When Hannah was in uh, eighth grade at Nutrier, or I guess it would, would have been the Washburn Middle School. Uh, she came home one day and said that she wanted to try rowing. Uh, she wanted to, uh, Nutrier has a, a really great uh, crew program. It's one of one public high schools in Illinois and in the in the sort of general Chicago area that has a, a, a varsity rowing program. And our daughter came home and, and said, uh, I really want to give this a try. And um, my wife and I still laugh that we, we actually tried to convince her to not do it. Um, we thought she'd be better, better off swimming or, or running cross country or doing something else. And, but Hannah is uh, pretty stubborn and, and, and competitive. And she said she really wanted to go, do it. So she gave it a try. She ended up rowing at Nutrier for, for four years. She rowed for a couple of years in college uh, at Lehigh University. Um, but, but her experience got us interested in it. More importantly, it got our two boys interested in it. So our son, Peter, uh, rowed at Nutrier and, and uh, ended up rowing in college. And, uh, and then our son, Jack, uh, rode it at Nutrier as well and is now rowing at Cal Berkeley. So Peter rode at Nutrier. He rode at Princeton on the Princeton Lights. And then, uh, and then Jack is uh, now a freshman at, at UC Berkeley. I would imagine watching your kids compete at that high level. I mean, as a parent, what a kick. Yeah, it's 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 really it's really awesome. Uh, I don't know how else to say it. I'm really proud of of all of the kids. We've grown to really love the sport of of rowing uh, or crew. Um, it's a it's a really interesting sport. It's a sport that really rewards hard work and dedication, commitment to team over self. It's just an awesome sport, and uh, you know the kids have worked really hard. And uh, you know Jack Jack was on the U19 national team the last couple of years. Uh, and it's been amazing to watch his his progress. Peter really led led the way for Jack, and I'm so proud of the mentorship he gave he gave his younger brother. It's been it's just been really great from a whole family perspective. But that's we're foreshadowing for our listeners. Mentorship is a word that we're going to be covering a lot over the next half hour. That's uh, that's very very cool. Um, so after Northern Trust Law School, uh, came back home for a bit, right? And then at Goodwin um, for for a spell. That's right. Uh, I, I followed in my mother's footsteps at Boston College Law School. There'll be a there'll be some consistency to this. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I was fortunate to to do reasonably well at, at BC Law and and I have an opportunity to go to work at Goodwin Proctor. Um, I kind I think I went into law school thinking that I would be a, a litigator. I candidly didn't truly know what that meant, um, but I, I found myself at Goodwin uh, drawn to working in the the corporate department at Goodwin um, and working with some really great people uh, in the in the securities and private equity teams. And that was really my introduction at the age of 27 or 28 years old into what has become a, a longer business focused career. But I, I, I left BC Law, went to Goodwin Proctor uh, and was an associate at Goodwin for three years. How do you think being a lawyer helped you be a better investment banker? First of all, I, I worked with incredible professionals and the standard of excellence at Goodwin Proctor was was just as as good as I've ever seen. So the mm -hmm. expectation level, uh, some of the some of the um, partners that I had the good fortune to work with just really sort of demonstrated through their commitment level and professionalism what it looked like, what it what it actually looked like to be a great professional. Um, a, a gentleman gentleman by the name of Steve Carr 
who uh, who was the head of M&A at Goodman Proctor at the time, used to say that there are a lot of different uh, lawyers out there, all of whom are really smart, um, but we're able to charge a premium if we based on excellence. And so that means excellence in all respect. And every every piece of work product that left the building had to be focused on excellence. And that was a that was a great thing to really sort of learn at that at that formative time. I think I think also, you know, being a securities lawyer, being a private equity lawyer, and I you know, I will admit to have only having done it for a couple of years, uh, it really involves digging in really, really deeply into the mechanics of what's happening. You're responsible for how the transaction is really working. And I I, I think that, that that focus on the details, uh, understanding the mechanics of the transaction, um, the service orientation, and the focus on excellence all were, were really helpful. So here's the point where I feel like I need to let Andy talk about how his law degree helped him in investment banking. So Andy, let me ask you a question. How did your law degree, does that make you a better investment banker? Uh no, you know, it, it really, uh, it, it did nothing for me. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know what put, put you that, oh, I think, I, I mean, I just to, you know, extend on what John is, is saying. I, I think when you spend your early career getting introduced to transactions through documents, you become accustomed to seeing a deal as a story that plays out. And, and I think it brings all of those elements into focus. I've found that over time, any ability that I have to be sitting with a client in an organizational meeting, to be able to visualize issues, working capital adjustment, purchase price allocation, uh, allocation insurance liability, uh, restrictive covenants, for them, it's all in the future. But for you, those issues are right there. They're coming into focus for you early in, in, in the deal. And I think other investment bankers have, you know, you can get that visibility from different things, but I feel like legal training contributed to my having that sense of things. It's really interesting, Andy, you bring up that, that point of sort of focusing in on the issue. I think law school and then my time at, at Goodwin really helped with a couple of other things. The, the first being process of problem solving, identifying the, the, the core issue at hand. In the case of the law, understanding, identifying and understanding the rule, applying the rule against the issue and, and, and using that as a, a structured sort of framework of thinking to reach a conclusion or a perspective. That was, that was very, very helpful. And I think created a more structured way of thinking and problem solving for me. The second is just writing. I think it's a, a long lost art. My time at, at law school and, and frankly, as a history major, I, I, I just wrote a lot and read a lot. And I think those two things, reading and writing and problem solving on top of that were very helpful, not just for investment banking, but for anything. Was it while you were still at Goodwin or early days as, as an investment banker that it kind of dawned on you that you had a real talent for this kind of work? I don't know that it dawned on me that I had a talent for it. What what dawned on me when I was a good one is that I didn't see that being my long-term career. I didn't know what I wanted it to be. I was, again, really, really lucky. Through a friend of mine, it was Paul Popio, I, I was able to meet a friend of his who'd worked with him at Showed, who was now, who was then working at a firm called Adams, Harkness, and Hill. And this person, Tom Swan, he, uh, after meeting, he just called me and said, hey, you know, we're looking for an associate in the software investment banking group at Adams Harkness. Would you be interested? You seem like you were interested in potentially exploring something different. And uh, 
I said, well, sure. Uh, without really knowing what I was getting myself into, I agreed to have a couple of conversations and see where it, where it went. Turns out that I, I ended up getting offered that job. The funny story around that is that when I mentioned to my wife that I was considering changing careers from the law to investment banking, she said, well, you don't know anything about investment banking. You don't know anything about software or technology. And we have a six-month-old and a mortgage. Other than that, it sounds like a great idea. <laughs> and that is, sounds apocryphal, but it happens to be true. Um, but you know, I, I felt like there was something different that I wanted to give a try to. And I was very supported, not just by, by Karin, um, but by the, the, the colleagues I had at, uh, at Goodwin Proctor who said, you know what, go, go give it a try. Now this was 1999 and it was the, the uh, dot-com boom and, and, and being a technology investment banker seemed to be what everyone wanted to do. I, I went into it, not really knowing what it, what it involved, but uh, learned a lot on the job. So take take us through your other stops culminating in your in a very successful tenure at William Blair. Sure. Um, so uh, I, I I spent five almost six years at uh, at Adams Harkness. Within a couple of years, I was uh, I was asked to to lead the technology services, the IT services investment banking team at uh, at Adams Harkness, and uh, that 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 was again being sort of thrown right into it and and. Uh, had to sort of learn on the job in a, in a major way. In 2005, Adams Harkness was acquired by Canaccord. I think it was a, it was the right thing for Adams at the time, but I uh, wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. Um, fortunately, I'd worked on a transaction, uh, a, a public offering for Charles River Associates with, with William Blair, in particular, a couple of uh, William Blair bankers who, be, who have become very, very close friends. They became longtime partners of mine and very close friends, Brett Paskey and Scott Patterson. And and uh, through the course of that, they asked me uh, if I'd be interested in, in joining them at William Blair. That involved a, a, a move back to Chicago. Once again, um, Karin was was very supportive, I think, in, in many ways, excited about coming back to the Midwest. She's from Grand Rapids, Michigan, originally. And uh, and so in 2000, early 2006, uh, we moved to to Chicago. Uh, so began a, what ended up being a, a long career at William Blair, uh, doing a number of different things. When we first met, you were part of the financial sponsors group. I know then you then pivoted to tech, then you led the tech group, then you became the vice chairman. I mean, Blair is a, is a unique animal, and there are a lot of middle market banks that have done incredibly well. Blair is one that is still remains independent and own a, a true partnership. Talk about and share what it was like over that tenure and, and the relationship. You said a little bit about the relationships. Talk, share a little bit more about that and why it was mm -hmm. such an, uh, you know, an impactful, meaningful period of your life. Sure. It, it, it really was, um, you know, career changing, life changing to have the opportunity to join the William Blair team. And, and I made the decision you know, largely because of the people. Uh, the platform seemed really strong, but it was the people I met uh, that that really were, were the draw. Um, the other thing I would say about my time there, so I, I joined as a member of the, what was called then the business services team. Um, and I spent a couple of years there, Made it, uh, was, was uh, named a partner of William Blair, I guess a year and a half later as a member of that business services team and, and was approached by uh, the the then head of investment banking, a, a legendary uh, guy here in Chicago by the name of, of uh, Dick Kiphart, and uh, and Dick asked me if I wanted if I'd be interested in um, in as he put it, 
opening an office in Boston. What that meant, I, I don't think any of us knew, but we, we had a sales trading presence. We had, uh, at William Blair at the time had a sales trading presence in Boston, but but no no investment bankers and no no other material presence. I I did uh, I did go home and I, I was very intrigued by it. I went home and and once again said to Karen, "Hey, good news. Um, I think we can move back to Boston." And she said, uh, "We just moved here a couple of years ago, and the kids are finally settled and happy. Uh, so maybe not. Um, so so what?" What that began was, uh, I, I was still committed to doing it. I was very intrigued at the opportunity of being an office builder um, and, and wearing a whole bunch of different hats, including um, that sort of sponsor coverage hat. But it was really about, you know, the, the excitement for me, Charlie, was about, you know, taking this, this really great platform and bringing it to a city that I knew would would embrace it. It just hadn't it just hadn't been introduced really, and uh, and so that was that was back in two thousand and eight. Uh, turned out two thousand and eight and two thousand and nine were a really tough time to to build an office, but in many ways they were a great time. Certainly had plenty of time to uh, to to build relationships and think about office building because there weren't very many transactions happening. But but it was um it was a really great experience. I, I commuted uh, for the better part of almost seven years. We, we, we talked a lot at that time and you were very kind to, uh, to sponsor me to stay at a club for most of my time uh, there when I was in Boston. I was really spending three or four nights a week, three out of every four weeks, getting on a plane in Chicago, going to Boston for the week and coming back home. It was very tough. I think on Karen and the kids, um, but it was a, a, an incredible growth experience. And that office grew from, you know, a very small sort of skeleton staff to now a, a really really large full service uh, um, office for William Blair. I'm very proud of it. So you listened a bit to the podcast and sure have picked up that uh, we more often than, than not, we come around to culture and also differentiation. I, I've, I've got a friend who uh, runs a uh, professional services practice not investment banking, but akin to it, he makes the observation that if you can take your collateral material and take your name off of it and substitute someone else's, it's a pretty good indication that you're not as differentiated as you think you are. You, you know, you've thought a lot about this, and you know, particularly at, at Blair. What observations do you have on meaningful differentiation? That's a great question, Andy. Um, share some perspectives. I, I, I certainly agree. I think culture is is really everything, uh, especially in a professional services firm, especially in a, a true people business where your product is is really just the collective output of a group of, of people working together in pursuit of a shared mission, a shared vision, or, or whatever it might be. So you have to you have to understand that in order to custom build the culture that's necessary for for the organization. When I was working in the in the Boston office for a number of years, I was then asked to to lead the technology team at William Blair. And it was a, it was a really great group of people. We, you know, looking back to sort of that 2014, 2015 timeframe, we had some pockets of, 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 of excellence, uh, but not a, 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 you know, a real large footprint in the, in the broader sort of technology investment banking and M&A marketplace, I think it would be fair to say. And we undertook a, you know, I, I was asked to lead the team. Um, uh, it, it was probably a non-obvious choice on the part of the firm uh, to ask me to do it, uh, non-obvious for me to want to do it. But I, 
I was excited about it uh, and and decided if I was going to do it. First of all, I asked the, the the senior members of the team if they were if they thought it was the right decision, because if they weren't bought into me moving into that role, then I knew it wasn't going to work. Fortunately, um, they they said they were. And then uh, we decided, okay, so if we're going to do this, are we going to do it to be only okay, or are we going to try to be the best in the world? We at the time, you know, sort of looked at the marketplace and realized through a, an honest assessment that we we had to change things up. We looked at the paradigm that existed in investment banking and decided that a path to to doing really really well uh, was going to run through shifting that paradigm uh, and and changing the nature of not just what we did, but how we were perceived in the market. So we 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 uh, we did a few things, uh, many of which were internally focused and culture uh, oriented. If you want to have great relationships externally with your, you know, within your ecosystem, you have to have great relationships internally with your own, you know, colleagues. And so we 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 spent a lot of time, uh, more time than many would expect, just sort of getting to know one another and making sure that we were, we had alignment around what we were endeavoring to do together. Uh, I think that work drove a lot of the the change that that followed. We were able to build the business in a significant way in a short period of time, and uh, it was really because of the commitment of everybody in the team to doing it. Just to revisit um, Andy, your comment. I mean, we focused a lot on building something truly differentiated in the market that we felt had what, what we called and. We sort of lifted from a concept uh, championed by by a woman, woman by the name of Nilla from Merchant, this concept of onlyness, and it, and and we realized once we created that onlyness and the differentiation in the market and in the ecosystem, um, that that it was it was something that was going to continue to perpetuate that success, and that's what happened. We were very fortunate. Before you leave it, can you just drill in just a little bit more on an example of maybe of something? that you thought was important and you realized wasn't as a result of that process? In, in investment banking, I found that people spent a lot of time trying to show that they were a little bit better or knew a little bit more and had a, a few more tombstones that they could put into a pitch book and thought that that was the path. And in reality, those things are all incremental um, and they don't really speak to something that's truly different. There's no, there's no wow factor to it. And, and, and so that realization that just trying to be a little bit better than everybody else and trying to always prove that we knew a little bit more was never going to create any any separation, uh, to use a football term. Uh, the separation was going to come from being different. And, and what we realized is that, you know, the paradigm in banking, especially at scale, was, was you know, generally, and this is general, not specific, um, very sort of individually focused versus team focused, uh, very, you know, very, um, you know, kind of eat what you kill and that, and that there was a different way to do it, which would be to aggregate relationships, to aggregate, you know, knowledge or information in the market to really drill down on, on all of the above to create something that, that was self-reinforcing uh, relationships that were not just individual, but that were collective. Uh, and, and, and relationships that were built with care. And that that sense of actually caring about clients and getting to know them and really embedding in the ecosystem was really important. You're listening to Middle Market Musings, brought to you by Greenberg Variations Capital and New Heritage Capital. John, you had an incredible run at Blair, but you elected to make a move and become CEO of PSP Partners. Share a little bit about your thought process and why you made that move. It, it, I was really, again, really, really fortunate with with that as called a run. Um, 
there is a concept we talked about a lot internally, which is this idea of embracing change. And I, I believe in greatly, which is, uh, in, 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 there is a book, uh, my first book reference of today will be Legacy by James Kerr. And this concept of uh, when you're on top of your game is when you change your game. We talked a lot about that, never, never letting yourself grow stale and seeking to sort of get in front of the change curve, um, the sigmoid curve of, 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 of growth, maturation, and obsolescence, and, and change before that happens. And and I I kind of knew that just like when I was a when I I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was at at Goodwin Proctor, I just felt like I wanted to do something different. I knew I wanted to do something different for the next chapter. Um, I wasn't quite sure what it was, uh, but I wanted to do something that was I, I knew for sure um, very much aligned with my core values uh, that I found very interesting um that was leveraging hopefully a lot of what i had learned and hopefully doing it in a different in a different capacity uh with maybe different people to learn from and to learn with so really to stretch and and learn uh, new industries new markets and, and and new skills with new people maybe we can take a moment here and you can just give uh a quick overview of psb partner set for those that aren't aware of uh what it is that uh, you all focus on. Sure. So, so as that was happening, I would, I had uh, moved into a, a vice chairman role of William Blair and I was considering what, what might come next. And I really did not, not, did not know. I was very fortunate to be connected with uh, Penny Pritzker and, um, and, and so began uh, on that, on that day, we first uh, spoke uh, the next chapter of my, my career and in my life. Um, so, so Penny's an amazing person, and and uh, that that became clear immediately. Uh, she was looking at the time for a, a CEO for PSP Partners. PSP Partners is the private investment firm that that Penny had founded um, years ago and had built along with a number of great colleagues, all of whom are many of whom are still here, into a a multi asset class private investment firm across private equity, venture capital. And real estate. Um, like I said, Penny was looking for a a CEO to to come in and work very closely with 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 Penny as well as our our senior leadership team uh, to to bring together um, the different uh, seemingly disparate uh, business units uh, and to together envision a, a future for PSP Partners and where where it might go, and then to bring. Uh, some some process thinking to ensure that we had the systems and the, the processes in place to to uh, to scale the organization over time. Penny's very much a business builder. Uh, her her career uh, uh, reflects that across multiple different dimensions. Uh, from her time at Hyatt, uh, starting the parking spot, uh, building V Senior Living, and all the way through through her time at uh, Commerce uh, as the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. And, and now to uh, to PSP partners. And so this idea of building something um, big, building something durable that was authentic to the values of, of Penny uh, and the organization was really interesting to me. Where we where we are today, and we, we've, we've uh, we, we I, I was very fortunate. Uh, the firm itself was in a great, great place. It, was, it had been built with intentionality and, and forethought um, over the preceding, you know, 15 or so years. Uh, and so there was absolutely nothing that was broken. There was only opportunity 
uh, to make better. And, and that, that sort of growth mindset and the embracing of that was really appealing to me. I imagine you all operate in many different strategies. Maybe you can share a little bit more details in that regard. Yeah, you bet, Charlie. Uh, we do. Um, we have a fully built teams uh, in, in private equity, what we call private uh, PSP capital, uh, venture capital, what we call PSP growth, um, and a couple of different um, segments in the real estate market uh, through our PRG or Pritzker Realty Group uh, teams, industrial and, and multifamily. The PSP capital side, we're, we're uh, investing in um, middle market businesses, market leaders in, in segments that we feel we have you know, an authentic right to invest in and to business build in. Uh, that's really important to us. We have a, a flexible uh, mandate. Um, we think about investing over the longer term, uh, although we can we can we can operate again with flexibility uh, in terms of, of time of hold or or size of of, of check. But uh, we but we have a, a terrific team uh, led by my colleagues Troy Nord and and Michael Ashansky focused on two two uh, sectors in particular uh, business and technology services and advanced industrials um, and uh, and a portfolio of of, of very nice businesses uh, that we we are in a control position in uh, we also will do um, minority in addition we will make strategic what we call strategic co investments uh, alongside other. Uh, private equity firms, some of which we have an LP position in, um, others of which we just have strong relationships. Give us, uh, John, give, give our listeners a sense of the average uh, check size or deal size of the buyout fund. So on our PSP capital team, uh, for, for control acquisitions, we're typically um, uh, writing checks between 100 and 300 million of equity. Uh, we can go larger through a, through a, um, a series of relationships we have uh, if, if, if we we need to or would like to. Um, we we can write smaller checks. Typically, we do those, Andy, for what we call strategic co-investments alongside other private equity firms that we, we know and have good relationships with, either friendships, have worked together before, or maybe even have an LP position do in. Do you feel, I'm curious, do you feel markedly closer or farther away from seeing the whites of the eyes of a deal now compared to your final role at Blair? Probably closer to actually, um, uh, because we're doing, we're doing fewer and, 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 you know, my, my role at William Blair, especially over the last several years there, it really evolved more into a, into a leadership and, and, uh, strategy and team building, uh, role and relationship management role with our, our, our large private equity clients in particular. Uh, here, you know, we're not doing a lot of transactions. We're we're doing important transactions. And so I, I, I tend to stay closer with our team members here on, on each one of those. If you're sitting in a management presentation now, do you do you find that you'd like you you can see you feel like you see into the soul of the bankers or the principals on the other side? And you know, how how do you, how do you react to seeing the finished product put forward where that was you doing it for 20 years? <laughs> it was probably a long time since I was actually really that close to the finished product in front. But uh, no, I, 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 I think, um, look, I, I, uh, I know the work that goes into it. I know the various different uh, levers that get pulled, the puts and takes um, on that finished product, as you put it. Uh, and so I, I, I do, I think, have a pretty good sense of the right questions to ask 
and what to look through to see what's real. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I'm really fortunate the team we have here on the PSP capital side across the board here, but PSP capital side in particular on this, on this, uh, topic is great. I mean, they've been in the private equity investing business, each one of them for a number of years. Our leadership team has been doing this for 15 plus years and they've been principal investors longer than I have. And, you know, it's, it's one more case in which I'm, you know, I'm here to help them. I'm also here to learn. One of the hallmarks of the conversations the two of us have enjoyed over the past, you know, 20 plus years or so is that you're a voracious reader on books on leadership. Um, you talk a lot about mentorship. You talk a lot about intentionality, which is a great word. Um, in your position, share with us a bit, if you will, about the culture internally at PSP and, and what you're looking to build and where it stands today. It's a great question, Charlie. Um, we, I, I think we have a, ter uh, a terrific culture here at PSP. Of that, I'm, I'm very certain. Um, as I said earlier, I think culture is a foundation of any 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 business, any and, and certainly any any professional services or or knowledge based business. I think that culture starts with values, and I think from a leadership perspective, you have to know your own values first. I think it requires a lot of self reflection um, and thought about what what you think is important. Then organizationally, uh, once you've landed on that, um, hopefully as a leader and a and a, and a group of leaders. You can start to really have the conversation with with the broader team about what the organizational values are and how those map. Hopefully, there's a, there's alignment around those values. Uh, if there's not, there's a bigger problem that you need to address. Um, I was fortunate uh, when I when I was talking to Penny early. Uh, the first thing that I I realized that there was was that there was great values alignment, and and from there, you know, I knew that there was an opportunity for us to to do something together and hopefully do something great together, and for me to be be part of that story um we we have under undertaken in the past year or so um a a values discovery uh process which uh you know I'm, I'm i'm really excited that people leaned into in a big way um that process as it should have uh took a number of uh number of turns it took a lot of time a lot of investment um and and ended up with the, an output of uh, something that we're really proud of here. Uh, we we landed on on what we call our ideals, uh, I D E A L S, which stands for integrity, diversity, excellence, alignment, leadership, and service. And and then the definition of each one of those and how how those values organizationally uh, should guide uh, the decisions we make. Um, and they do. Uh, we we uh, we we look at every opportunity now and and ask. Uh, does this align with our our values? Um, does this is this in keeping with our ideals? Uh, and we talk about it a lot. I think that for values to become real uh, and operationalized inside an organization, you have to talk about them a lot. You have to make them part of the sort of daily conversation, uh, almost to the point where <laughs> it's overwhelming. But uh, but but that's how they really set in. When you think about the whole idea of standing on the shoulders of giants and mentorship. Is there any one person that comes to mind that's been kind of particularly instrumental in this kind of phase of your life where you are right now? One would be difficult, uh, candidly, Charlie. I mean, there's, yeah, I think we're all the compilation of, of, of a bunch of relationships over time. So one would be difficult. I, if, if I have the, the liberty to do it, I, I'd love to 
kind of make a couple of shout outs and then I'll get to one. Nice. This is like your Academy Awards acceptance speech. Don't worry, we're not going to start playing the music. See, Charlie can ask that question with such clarity because he does a podcast with the person who occupies that role for him. (laughs) It's just, that's just, it's so funny when Andy tells a joke and he laughs at it more harder than anybody else. But anyway, go for it. (laughs) Mentorship. Yeah, well, I I take mentorship really seriously. Um, Early on, uh, a a person I had great admiration, have great admiration for said to me, one of the most important things, maybe the most important thing you'll find in your career is, is a great mentor, hopefully a series of great mentors. And that's proven to be true. And I think it, it, uh, it's become something I feel uh, an obligation, and also a passion to, uh, to pay back, Uh, you know, along the way, there were, there were, there were mentors who, you know, who who were in roles of significant influence and some who were just you know who who had um smaller but very impactful roles uh you know i think back to when i was in high school um a couple of my best friends father was a a, a guy by the name of uh, robert popio he's an amazing man he was a great lawyer in the city of boston for those who know him a founder of mince levin and um mr popio asked me when i was at his house when i was a 17 year old senior at Belmont Hill, if I would be interested in coming to work um, as an intern, uh, kind of as a back in the day, you would run documents. We, you couldn't fax documents and you couldn't, let alone email documents, but you would typically take printed documents and run them across the city of Boston. So I, 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 I interned for Mr. Popio. And on the first day of my internship, I remember going up the, the elevator. And I will also say that I think it was the first time I was above the fourth or fifth floor in a building in my entire life at that time. I'd never really been in a tall building uh, up until that point. And I went to the, whatever it was, the 30th floor and Mr. Popio came out. He, he met me in the lobby. Uh, I was pretty, pretty overwhelmed by the whole experience. He, we uh, marched down to his office and we looked out the window and I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, John, you can do this. This can be your life. And it was a very impactful thing. I've never forgotten it. And uh, I was very fortunate. Mr. Popio passed away last year. I had the opportunity to see him about a year and a half ago. And I, I I, was in his office and I told him that story. I said, you probably don't remember this, but this happened. And it was hugely impactful to me. It reminded me that, you know, the, the small moments we have with people can leave a, a lasting impact. Over the last 30 years, my, my father-in-law, Peter Kleinschmidt, has been a terrific mentor who just models integrity and, and, uh, and responsibility uh, in everything he does. Um, over the last decade or so, a, 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 a friendship and mentorship relationship has developed uh, with someone who's very important to me, a guy by the name of Harry Kramer, who's a professor of leadership at Kellogg and has written a few books on on um, values and the, tra- and the translation of values into action and how you lead and live a, an integrated values-based life. What charitable organizations do you make a priority? Yeah, I'm involved in. I'm fortunate enough to be involved in a few of them, uh, and um, and uh, really, really passionate about them. Charlie, uh, I'm the um, <laughs> was asked to be the board chair of uh, the Honor Foundation uh, a year ago, and and uh, it's it's something that I'm, I'm I'm deeply passionate about. The Honor Foundation, which is uh, honor.org, for those who are interested. Um, is uh, just a terrific organization that was um, that was uh, originally uh, 
sort of seed funded by the Navy SEAL Foundation. I don't have any military background, nor does anyone really in my my immediate family. Um, but a, a friend of mine was was uh, was a member of the Naval Special Warfare community. Uh, introduced me into both what what that comprises, but also some of the challenges um, that uh, that members of the Naval Special Warfare, otherwise known as the SEAL teams and 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 related forces, uh, and the broader special operations uh, force community face when they're transitioning out of the military and into the civilian workforce. And so that's what we do. We, we at the Honor Foundation support uh, transitioning special operators uh, with a with a really intentional um, uh, approach. Uh, classrooms in, in multiple different locations and uh, on the East Coast and West Coast and in and, and several other uh, in military installations around the country uh, or adjacent to. Uh, and we're working with active duty members of the of that community to help envision a, a future for themselves that's as exciting and fulfilling and rewarding as as their prior prior career. That's, that's very, awesome. very cool. I imagine that many listeners would hear you like other leaders are in the industry and think, well, it was just an uninterrupted ascendant path. Take a minute to talk about a moment in your career where you felt like you hit a wall or having a reverse and had to deal with it. Uh, yeah, there, there've been a lot, Andy. Um, you know, I, I, I referenced sort of trying to get a, an office up and running well, William Blair in Boston in 2008 and 2009, when, you know, it, it felt like there might not be any opportunity and that the, the, this, 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 this concept of building an office um, seemed like a, just a dream uh, when, when, when there was, you know, when we were in the middle of the GFC and there were a lot of sleepless nights. A lot of those sleepless nights were spent alone in a hotel room in Boston, traveling away from my family in pursuit of this whole concept of like building a building an office that no one previously had felt was worth having. Um, those, those, those were tough. I think, you know, at the same time, you know, that was when my, my mother had a heart attack and, and, and her cancer was discovered. And, and it felt like, you know, this, this steady, you know, stream of good things was interrupted by some really bad things. And I worried about the future at that time. And, you know, everybody goes through hard things. Those are just a couple that jumped to mind. Mine might mine might pale in comparison to the difficulties that that others face. But um those those are a couple that kind of personally and professionally stand out for me. And and you know, again, along the way, we all have these moments where you think that whatever happened, that there's that recency bias that whatever happened that was bad is going to portend a bad future. Uh oh my God, how is this ever going to get better? It gets better. It gets better. Um, you know. <laughs> We lived through the pandemic collectively as a society, and there were moments where you just wondered, "What? Well, where is this going to lead us? The least productive human instinct is anticipatory anxiety. Yeah, there's a Stoic quote I spent a lot of time reading, Stoic philosophy, which is basically, you know, what Marcus Aurelius would say is, it's just wasted time. It's wasted time thinking about the many bad things that haven't yet happened that could. Can I tell you something? I have on my iPad, I have you know, quotes by Marcus Aurelius, be, because I sit with I the daily just, stoic on my, on I, my desk. I, here picked you, I picked you out on that. Marcus Aurelius is that statue of the lower quad at Brown, not just a guy who you, you know, wander past when you're hungover, 
Stoic philosophy. I was listening to you, and and I I was thinking so much of what John is talking about reflects Stoic philosophy. I I wonder if this guy is a Marcus Aurelius guy. Well, you know, you were asking me about books when we were off camera, and, you know, one is The Meditations, uh, which which is, I think, a must read for anybody. There's also a great book called How to Think Like a Roman Emperor by named Donald Robertson, which is really an, 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 a, a sort of layman's exploration of Stoic this, philosophy. This may, I, all right, this may, may be a difference between you and me, but I don't recommend meditations to people. What I tell people is, if you Google Marcus Aurelius quotations and you, you get like the three or four pages of quotes, you get so much inspiration and you cap, you get the thrust of meditation. Well, I, I think there's a couple things to to that, Andy. One is there's some 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 incredibly powerful simplicity in, in statements like "Let us stop talking about being good men and be good." Right. Uh, and, and and then there's also a recognition that's very humbling, which is that this was all written several thousand years ago, and it and yeah. it rings true today. Things things change, but a lot of things stay the same. The comment that you made that made me think of Marcus Aurelius was that you, you said something about taking seriously the attachments in your life. And it made me think of accept the things to which fate binds you and love the people with whom fate brings you together, but do so with all your heart. With all your heart. Yes. Yes, yep. sir. John, we went into this conversation with high expectations and I think I can speak for Andy, which makes me uncomfortable doing so. Um, but you far exceeded those high and lofty expectations. So thank you so much for sharing the story that you have today. And we wish you nothing but continued success. Charlie, I really appreciate it. Andy, I really appreciate it. You guys were very kind to invite me on to your show. I, I, I've listened to several, uh, a number, like I said, a longtime listener, first time caller. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and I, a lot of high bars were set by a lot of great uh, guests that you've had. I, I hope I hope this was uh, as fun for you as it was for me. It's actually a very, very interesting thing to reflect back on your life and to think about all the different threads that connect and the people who've had impact on your life and kind of how you got to where you are. It seems like a long and winding road, I guess. And when you look back on it, it kind of makes sense, but there's no way you could ever predict it if you were 20 or 30 years in the past. And so this has been really fun. Well, I will just say that your own intentionality and using your word and something that's important to you has led to a really robust and interesting conversation. So grateful again for your time. Thanks, my friend. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Middle Market Musings. We'd like to extend our sincere thanks to John Skinner for joining us today, as well as our sponsors, Greenberg Variations Capital and New Heritage Capital, as well as thanks to our editor, Jason Zapola. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd encourage you to like and follow Middle Market Musings on Spotify, Apple, or whichever provider you use to access podcasts. And of course, feel free to share with your friends. Thanks again, and we look forward to catching you on the next one.